Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, uh, I understand you're you're on uh, holiday travel. Is this part of the uh, the kind of effort to allow our our listeners to understand that you're just like everybody else? That's right. It's getaway day, and I'm on the road somewhere in Pennsylvania, uh, on on the way to a to a nice peaceful Thanksgiving. Because once again, nothing happened in Washington this week. Can you offer us a traffic report or anything useful? Uh, what, what are your observations? A lot of people out there. People are driving, and uh, they are they're 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 hungry and they're ready for a break. I can I can faithfully report from the road. Excellent, excellent. So you know th- this was obviously it's 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 already been a big week, um, a huge week in American politics, um, a huge week in American culture, and we had that that kind of signature event that really kind of brought it all together. Um, and by that I'm of course talking about the uh, the turkey pardon. Uh, right there in the Rose Garden with the president. Did you catch that? Yeah, big big cultural moment for us. I agree. The national conversation around turkeys. And the president pardoned uh, Drumstick, who was present, but also Wishbone, who was not present. And I, I, I'm trying to get a sense of whether or not the, the person being pardoned actually has to be there when the pardon is administered, or in this case, a turkey. Uh, but 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 I wanted to I wanted to play a little clip of the president who seemed to be enjoying himself uh, uh, in the Rose Garden. I just want to just just check this out. As many of you know, I have been very active in overturning a number of executive actions by my predecessor. However, I have been informed by the White House Counsel's Office that Tater and Tot's pardons cannot, under any circumstances, be revoked. So, uh, you know, a little joke from the president, but the reason why I wanted to play is I, I, I was looking at the, uh, the the coverage of this turkey pardon, which actually unusually got the first page of the national section in the New York Times, an entire article about a turkey pardon, which uh, is, is more coverage than this usually gets. Um, and I just wanted to read you a little a little excerpt here, Rick, uh, from this Times story um, uh, headlined, I feel so good about myself, Trump says, as he lets turkeys live. Um, Mr. Trump appeared perhaps more comfortable than usual, unburdened by forces beyond his jurisdiction. So much of the job has frustrated him by his own account. He cannot intervene in the Justice Department, uh, Justice Department Affairs. Uh, he cannot browbeat lawmakers into affirming his agenda. Here is something he can control. This turkey lives. Other turkeys die. It is so ordered. There is your executive power for you right there. No constitutional crisis. Uh, turkeys live. Turkeys die. You don't have to worry about Alabama. You don't have to worry about uh, sex scandals. All it is, is is it's all right there in front of you. And then the president gets to do his job. And the extraordinary uh, moment that, that, that happened uh, not long after the turkey uh, pardon was uh, the president essentially embracing, not quite endorsing, but it felt like he was moving towards an endorsement of Roy Moore um, and, and, and facing the question from our own Cecilia Vega, uh, maybe, the, maybe the central question here is, is it worse to have uh, an accused uh, child molester in the Senate or a Democrat? Mr. President, is an accused child molester better than a Democrat? Is an accused well, child molester it. better Look, than a Democrat? Well, he denies it. <laughs> uh, that was that. In that case, that was uh, that was uh, Kristen Welker asking the question, but Cecilia asked the same question uh, uh, in in the White House briefing and got a got a got a similar answer. Um, 
The president then went on at length, as you know, Rick, uh, uh, talking about how terrible the Democratic candidate Doug Jones is, you know, terrible on taxes, on crime, on immigration, um, seemed to be essentially saying, vote Roy Moore. Yeah, and it is it is a remarkable moment. I mean, it's it, 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 I think it counts as an endorsement. He is saying vote Roy Moore. And we've had this national talk about a real national conversation. We've had this national Me Too moment. And the president said, well, but not us. And it is a very strong and, and stark statement to make to have him say, I'd rather have uh, Roy Moore in the United States Senate. Most of the national leaders in his party are saying the opposite right now, even threatening to kick him out uh, if he's elected. Uh, but yeah, as all these people have come out, the president says, well, he denies it. So I believe him. And it's, it's hard to see this through anything other than a partisan prism, because that's the way the president is handling it. Yeah. So I uh, I figured this would be a good time for us to, to check in with uh, um, somebody who we've 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 covered a lot over the years, uh, former governor of the great state of Maryland, uh, former presidential candidate uh, Martin O'Malley, I believe, is on the line. Mr. O'Malley, you with us? I'm with you. How you doing, guys? Doing great. Thank you for joining us on this, uh, you sure. know, build up to, uh, to to Thanksgiving. You you have started a, a new uh, a political organization called Win Back Your State PAC. Um, and uh, this is obviously the effort to get Democrats elected uh, at, at the local and state level uh, as, as a precursor towards a uh, towards a comeback on the national level, I assume. But but what what is your what, what is your assessment of this moment. Uh, obviously, Republicans are back on their heels in many ways. Um, but we also saw uh, amidst this 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 kind of avalanche of accusations of sexual misconduct uh, hitting not just the Republican candidates in uh, in Alabama, you know, towering figures in, in media and entertainment, uh, but also uh, somebody who I know that 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 that, that uh, you've been be supportive of, the, of in the past, uh, uh, Senator Al Franken. Yeah. So, you, so your question is, what do I make of all of all of this moment swirling together on on my favorite day of the year, yeah. the night before Thanksgiving? Yeah. <laughs> the, the night before Thanksgiving. I mean, I mean, let's 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 let, let's be really specific on it. I mean, do you do you think, amidst all of this, uh, uh, Senator Franken? Um, who has issued some statements, but we haven't we haven't heard much from in, in response to the allegations uh, against him. Do you think that that, that uh, Al Franken still belongs in, in the in the U.S. Senate, or do you think the accusations against him should result in the kind of you know what, what we have seen happen to people like Charlie Rose? Do you think he should you know do, do, do you think his career should be over as a result of this? Well, the uh, look, I think in every generation we like to hope huh, that our that our conduct moves a lot closer to our ideals in terms of how we treat one another, in terms of behavior that is that uh, uh, that we might have looked the other way at in the past that's no longer acceptable. And I, and I think that's what you see here in this moment, um, exactly where the ethics investigation goes and what, what happens with uh, Senator Franken and, and his decisions, uh, you know, I think has yet to unfold. I don't... I don't know enough about all the details of, of, of the latest allegations. I don't know if there's more uh, beyond the – I know there was something late-breaking yesterday. I apologize, guys. I was on, a, I was on the West Coast, just got back last night. But, um, I mean, all of, these things will, all of these things will have to play out. Uh, what's very clear is that this is, this is not behavior that in any means is, 
acceptable. I, I don't know. Frankly, I've been a little surprised by by all of that. I just wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't raised in a house like that. I used to hear people say, I remember when uh, Donald Trump was, you know, had his famous interview exposed with Billy Bush and it was being said, oh, it's just locker room talk. I, I go to the gym fairly often. I don't hear people talking like that in the locker room. This is aberrational behavior. It's unacceptable. And this is a this is a pivotal and important moment in our country's history to to move forward out of this involution. Um, can I talk more broadly about our nation's politics? Of course. Yeah, look, this is what I've been doing, guys, for about the last year. I've traveled to 21 different states across uh, our country. My wife says to me, why do you keep going out there and campaigning for people? And I said, because I feel good that I'm doing something good for my country and helping these men and women that are actually winning special elections. So as you mentioned in, when um, you, you introed me there, I have repurposed our leadership pack and relaunched our efforts. And it's all about winning back our states in order to save our country. In these last several, in, these, in this last year, a lot of these singular races haven't made it above the fold in big national newspapers, but but in places far away from each other, uh, special election in Delaware, special elections in Oklahoma, uh, Washington State, South Florida, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, Salem, New Hampshire, Davenport, Iowa, the Democratic Party's candidates have been doing 10 to 15 points better on Election Day than even their own spouses would predict on the eve of the election. And so what I see happening going on across our country is actually very encouraging, very exciting, and very hopeful. And it is courageous men and women, many of them stepping up for the very first time in their lives to run for office, to answer that, you know, that sacred call of public service, to pierce through all of the noise and all of the, all of the scandal, acrimony, and outrage that seems to be the 24-7 news feed from our national government, and actually go door-to-door and win back their states uh, so we can save our country. There are 36 governor's races up next year, gentlemen. It's a huge year for us, a huge year like the year that we were back in, in 2010, saddled with the, a very unrepresentative House of Representatives due to redistricting and, and the numbers of Democratic governors that went down this year. Well, we can we can change that now. Uh, good people sometimes make bad mistakes, but great nations correct those mistakes quickly. And that's what this next year is all about. And that's what I'm going to be throwing my shoulder into. Governor, what is your diagnosis of what happened at the state and local level during the Obama years? A lot of people saw that election. They think this is going to be a new generation of Democrats who come in under him didn't happen. As you know, the Democrats lost almost a thousand state legislative seats, lost control of the House, lost control of the Senate, lost control of a majority of the governorships. What went wrong and and how do you repurpose that, given the fact that you first you don't have an Obama like leader at the head of the party right now, but how do you repurpose that energy and diagnose what what happened over this last nine years? Yeah, the uh, the one uh, I guess to put it kindly, um, uh, to put it kindly, President Obama decided to set up a separate political organization rather than infusing the energy of his candidacy and his his uh, his amazing uh, and historic victory. Rather than infusing that energy into the veins of 
the Democratic Party and making the Democratic Party uh, new and more energetic. Uh, instead, the president and his people decided to set up a separate organization in Organizing for America, OFA. And, and um, I, I guess the president perhaps and his people thought that their, their role and in history was to transform us. Uh, allow all of us to transcend beyond the need for political parties. But when the Republicans and their small group of very, very wealthy donors who aren't afraid to write big checks uh, saw what was happening, they immediately filled that vacuum and in a very methodical way fielded candidates for not a whole lot of money to run for state Senate, state legislatures, uh, backed candidates for governor, and they were able to wipe us out at the state level and increasingly at the local level. We've never gone through a period of time, at least not in modern history, where the Democratic Party lost so many seats and so many governor's offices, uh, even as our, our, uh, our president was a Democrat. So that's a mistake that we made. We have to learn from that mistake. And uh, I believe that what's, what's happening now is that the party is regenerating itself, almost like after a, a bad forest fire. Uh, it's not coming from a memo at the DNC. It's not coming from some, uh, you know, the latest consultant uh, Cox message. No, it's much more. It's much more authentic. It's much more real. It's much closer to 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 people than that. It's all over the country. You see new candidates running for office, and I think this class, albeit one that is perhaps rising up in reaction to, uh, not perhaps, is definitely rising up in reaction to the bad detour we've taken in electing Donald Trump, you're going to see this men, this, this group of men and women who are running for office across the country as Democrats really redefining this party for many, many years to come. And in, when you talked about the DNC, I, I, this should be kind of a banner time of regeneration for the DNC. We just saw the FEC numbers, a paltry $5 million in, in the bank, still deeply indebted as a party, the Republican Party, uh, is touting all of these fundraising records that they continue to set. Is the DNC capable of taking this banner of leadership, or does it have to come from other sources at that stage in 2017? Yeah, we. I think the. Uh, I think this is not a matter of. Uh, how can I say this? Look, the, the DNC has a lot of uh, a lot of work to do. Uh, we uh, the manner in which we allowed our debate process to be manipulated. Uh, that we were silent for so many months while Donald Trump was rising, you know, the very few debates that we were allowed to have so as not to make life uncomfortable for this year's inevitable front runner. All of those things put a tremendous hurt on, on the party and its reputation in terms of, uh, you know, in, in terms of the headquarters, if you will, of the democratic national committee. But, but what's been happening is actually the, the, the true goal of any national party. And that is we are fielding candidates in places that in the past were uh, some would regard as flyover states, places where we couldn't even compete, states that were permanently red. Look, I don't believe there's such things as a flyover state or a permanently red state. If you look at Oklahoma, Oklahoma, which I believe had the largest margin for Donald Trump of any state in the union, uh, in the last seven special elections there, guys, Democratic candidates have defeated Republican candidates in five out of seven. 
I was there last Saturday. Allison Eichley Freeman had never run before. Three years ago, she was homeless. Today, she's she's a mom, mother mother of three. She has um, uh, she's a met, works as a mental health counselor. She ran against a Republican candidate in a district Donald Trump won by forty points, and she came out victorious on election night by forty four votes. So these are the swings that are happening in these special elections all around the country. And a lot of people are taking notice, especially uh, uh, first-time candidates that are, that are going out there and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to sit home and just throw stuff at the television set and be angry. I'm going to transform this grief that I have for my country into something more powerful and more life-giving. Uh, up in Salem, New Hampshire, uh, Carrie Lerner ran in the district that Donald Trump had carried by 23 points. She won by four. She hadn't run before. She was a roughly 50-year-old uh, real estate agent. Uh, I said to her, Carrie, what, what is, what's going on at the doors? What's the conversations like? What are you hearing? She said, I'm hearing people feel disregarded, disconnected. Their leaders don't listen to them. And I said, and what do you tell them? She said, I talk about those kitchen table issues, you know, how we make wages go up, how we create better jobs and better opportunities for our kids afford to send them to college. And I said, does Trump ever come up? She said, I never bring him up. And she said, when, it's, when I'm asked, I tell people I didn't vote for him. I voted against him. Um, but really, these men and women all tell me that they never bring up Donald Trump. He's like, uh, he's like the self-based in Turkey. You don't have to bring him up. It's the dark canvas, his sort of politics of fear and scapegoating and, uh, you know, uh, uh, personal abuse, abuse of process, and you know, uh, unethical behavior. That's all the dark backdrop. But these men and women that are reforming the Democratic Party and regenerating the Democratic Party from the ground up, um, they're talking about the, the issues that unite us. They're speaking to people's uh, anxieties and uh, economic concerns, and they're all very real. But they're not talking about Trump. They're talking about tomorrow, and they're talking about what we can do together. And the other thing that they, I hear from each of them is that the message that we're a good people, that we're all in this together, call it a unity message, call it solidarity, call it citizenship. Um, the mood out there in the general public has shifted from the anger, rage, and retribution, just give me a sledgehammer, I want to break it, to one of course correction. And I believe that if we continue to uh, field good candidates across the country and realize that states matter, that we're going to see a Democratic Party coming back uh, very, very strong in 2018. All right, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment uh, with Governor Martin O'Malley. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy-to-use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. Here on Cape Cod, the summer is wonderful. This is a place where people leave their doors open. 911, this line's recorded. What is your emergency? It's Crystal Worthington. I don't know what happened. I think she fell down or something. I'm, I'm sure she's dead. A killing on the Cape. There hadn't been a murder in Truro for 30 years. It was everyone's worst nightmare. Jealousy, anger, secrets, sex, and money. Believe me, everyone in this story had a motive. I couldn't imagine who could have killed her. Six heart-pounding podcasts. Follow the clues, the evidence, the new interviews. Listen now. 
And then, don't miss the explosive two-hour documentary television event, Friday night, November 24th, on ABC. Is the right man in jail? Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba, Ariana Huffington, Issa Rae, Barbara Corcoran, Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. And where is the ideological center of gravity for that party? Should is the Democratic Party, which clearly has moved in very decisively in a progressive left direction uh, in Congress and with the potential national candidates uh, that, that, that we've uh, that we've seen emerge? I mean, just look at look at how um, uh, you know Bernie Sanders' this idea of a single payer health plan, which got no support uh, previously, is now you know you know now you have uh, uh, major figures in Congress clamoring to, to, to sign on to co-sponsor. Is this going to be a party that will, uh, that will be welcome, that will be welcoming to moderates, welcoming to people, uh, to, to candidates who are pro-life, who, uh, uh may have, um, you know, uh, who are, who are strong second amendment supporters, uh, who are, are, are not as progressive on, on, on the economic issues as somebody you know, is this perhaps you or, or, or Bernie Sanders? Where, where, where is where is the ideological center of gravity of this party? Well, the the um, where's the ideological center? Look, there's some things that I mean. What during the presidential campaign, someone once asked me, "Are you to the left? Or are you to the right of Hillary Clinton?" And I said to them, "I'm I'm forward of her." In other words, I think what you see going on in the party is a big generational shift that happens. You know, it happens like like seasons, right? If you want to know where a country's headed, listen to her young people, and they will tell you where our country's headed. You won't find among Americans under 30 many climate change deniers or immigrant bashers or people that want to deny rights to gay couples or take away a woman's right to choose. That's where our country's headed. Um, the party is, our party, is a is a big tent party. It's one of the things that's Sometimes people find frustrating about the Democratic Party is the uh, amount of time time it takes to arrive at, you know, the crystallized message, uh, the the inability to enforce the sort of message discipline even around falsehoods like tax cuts create jobs, more tax cuts for the wealthy mean more opportunity. Uh, it's easier to get the Republican Party as constituted today singing off that one line than it is the Democratic party, given the diversity, given the different perspectives. But that's also what gives us, that's what gives us energy. And and really, it's that diversity that's the greatest strength of our country, too. So you ask about ideological divide. Uh, I, I know a lot of people kind of make a, a parlor game over rehashing the last election um, and looking at things constantly in a sort of left-right continuum. Uh, I'm we're at a we're in a second gilded age in our country, you know that is very very real. Uh, I don't think it makes one a leftist to say that, or or a socialist or a communist to say that 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 economic freedom also means freedom from monopoly, that it means equal opportunity for all. 
that's what American capitalism is about, really. Uh, so, look, I think it was I think it was Louis Brandeis who said, "You can have democracy, or you can have wealth concentrated in the hands of the few, but you cannot have them both." And that's the moment we're at as a country. And I, and I think people uh, are, are are pretty are, are pretty uh, are pretty clear in their understanding that we've arrived at a point of such concentrated wealth that it's corrupting our political institutions. And we need to we need to return to a much more common sense and inclusive way of democracy and both economic and social terms. You know, it's about inclusion in every generation. Right now, we're going through a bad period of exclusion, and it looks like it's about to become worse, at least in the short term with Donald Trump. But changes on the horizon. Changes on the horizon. Governor, Governor, central to this argument about top-down, bottom-up, generational change, uh, it, it really is, I think, the conduct of the Democratic Party over the last year, two years. And you saw Donna Brazile's book and some of the starting revelations in that. You lived it. Was the Democratic primary process rigged? Well, certainly we have a we bear a tremendous amount of responsibility for what I thought and what I said at the time, without very much chorus, <laughs> was a, a, a debate process that we, you know, where, where we totally, you know, we totally abdicated our responsibility. So, I uh, look at every Secretary Clinton and former President Clinton were. Uh, very formidable, double-barreled, uh, you know, uh, uh, force in American political history. Uh, probably not since FDR and Eleanor, right? Uh, so, uh, and they did everything in their power to secure the nomination within the rules as they as they found them. Uh, I do think that it was totally irresponsible for us. Uh, not to be debating over that summer, uh, not to have debates in prime time, and to have kicked over the format of our the few debates we did have to the rating agencies and the networks rather than having a more you know a, a more uh, uh, fair-minded uh, debate. Uh, while Donald Trump was rising from July forward, you know every two weeks they were having Republican debates in prime time with the big drum roll. And I suppose people thinking that it would be helpful to Hillary decided we wouldn't have a debate until the middle of October. And by then, uh, the, Donald Trump's fascist appeal was a was a genie out of the bottle, you know, uh, and shame on us. Hopefully we've learned from that. I believe we have. And I don't think you'll see that sort of behavior in the next uh, presidential campaigns. So speaking of the next presidential uh, campaign, um, before we let you go, uh, can you can you. Get, bring us up to date on your plans. Are we going to be seeing a uh, an O'Malley for president uh, campaign in 2020? Yeah, look, I've made an affirmative decision not to make that decision right now, gentlemen. Uh, what I'm putting my energy into is helping others in these really critically important midterms of 2018, 36 governor's races and state legislative races. Someone said to me, uh, one of your colleagues in the press said, oh, is this you laying the groundwork for another presidential campaign? And I said, no, I think I did that by running in the year when nobody else had the guts to challenge that, what was going down. Um, if I make that, when I make that decision, uh, it'll be down the road and it'll be after these midterms. So I'm going to put all of my energy right now into what is a, 
uh, a good in and of itself for our country, and that is helping good people win back their states so we can save our country. And that's what I'm going to put my energies into. Do you expect this is going to be an incredibly crowded field? I know, you know, Rick and I have been uh, talking about this, and we, it feels like we've we've spoken to uh, uh, at least a dozen potential uh, Democratic presidential candidates for the next round, maybe more. Will, will this will this look uh, like the Republicans did last time around? They had they had sixteen or seventeen candidates, depending on how you count. Yeah, I think so, and I hope so. I think that'd be healthy, and it was a great. It was a great poverty for our party the last time around. There was only one lifelong Democrat that sought our party's nomination and was willing to go out there and fight for it. That was me. Um, so hopefully next time we'll see a lot of candidates. I think that, and but we also have to take back our our debate process, especially in the primaries, from the entertainment industry and the rating agencies, uh, where. We saw how Donald Trump was lifted up for the sake of ratings, put in the center of the Republican stage. There were a lot of people on that stage. Uh, a lot of them actually had some experience, too. Um, but they kept the rating agencies, the infotainment industry, thought that Donald Trump was good for ratings. He was agitating. He was entertaining. They saw how he grabbed us. They saw we wanted more, and they gave it to us. Every debate, they put him front and center uh, because of because he was the most outrageous. I don't think that's I don't think that's how we should select our president. And I think we're about something bigger than ratings and entertainment here. And hopefully we'll t- we'll, uh, we'll we'll have a better format and the DNC uh won't kind of look the other way when things are you know on the, the next time around. So uh, so we'll see. You know a lot a lot can change in the next year, gentlemen. Uh so while the, it, it, it would appear that a lot of people will be running next time. Uh, it's it's always hard to say, hard to say. And it's also hard to say what it will do to the Democratic field if we're facing President Pence and a female vice president uh, rather than Donald Trump. So uh, the only thing I know for sure is that the next good thing for all of us to do is help good people win back their states. 36 governor's races, 36 state legislatures. And redistricting, congressional redistricting, will actually be determined by the elections next year, uh, not by the next presidential race, but by the elections next year in each of the states. All right, Governor, thank you. And, and just to clarify, uh, Donald Trump was not in the center of the stage because he was the most outrageous or he was the best for television ratings. He was at the center of the stage uh, because the, the, the positioning on the stage was based on on the polls. So he was the leader in the polls, which is why he was at the center. It had nothing to do with his outrageousness or or, or TV ratings. It was uh, the, 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 those were those were the established rules, you know, based on poll position. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I've heard, we'll see I've heard that excuse. It's not an excuse. That's, that excuse. The way, I mean, that's the way it I've was also done. Heard the, I've also heard. Well, I've also heard the CBS executive and you heard him say, too. But, I mean, you look at the amount of free coverage he was given, the way you guys turned on the cameras, you know, at every rally, uh, the backstage thing uninterrupted, let's break in live for another Donald Trump rally. Look, guys, we all bear responsibility for what we've done to our country. For my part, I'm going out there and I'm going to make it better. And And I think you guys will as well. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, Governor O'Malley. Thank you very much for joining us in Powerhouse Politics, and we'll uh, we'll catch up with you. And after the midterms, uh, you can come on come on the podcast again and tell us your plans for twenty twenty. Cool. Thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate it. All right. Take care.
Um, so, uh, so Rick, I, I just want to also clarify one other point. Uh, those of us here at Powerhouse Politics, we did not cover those rallies. Uh, That's uh, right. Uninterrupted. <laughs> um, that was not us at Powerhouse Politics. There may have been cable news stations. We don't need to. We don't need to specify who or what. But Powerhouse Politics did not do that. Uh, not even once. Is that correct? That's a, it's very true. We didn't. We didn't do any of it. Uh, you know, I think we'd also agree that we're we're all deciding not to decide. I love how that's the new <laughs> the new watchword about Joe <laughs> Biden saying the, the, the same thing. I'm deciding not to decide. That that gets you out of the way. But I think you know, Democrats are going to be as often happens with these primary battles. You, you fight the last battle, and I think the reaction to the perception of it being rigged in favor of one particular candidate is going to govern a lot of the processes around this. It's going to be a very big field. Martin O'Malley may or may not be part of it, but we know that there's going to be a whole lot of candidates doing it. And I think they're going to try to structure it in a way that opens it up as much as possible and uh, and tries to avoid some of the, the missteps last time. I would remind people that, as you know this, John, that the Republicans actually set up their primary uh, debate schedule to try to avoid uh, what had happened last time, which was one candidate essentially being a, 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 a hurt by the the proliferation of debates and Mitt Romney having to limp into the general election. They ended up getting something entirely different <laughs> with with President Trump and a different thing. So it's hard to go back and fight the last battle because you don't know what's what's in front of you. But I think, you know, the Democrats face a lot of challenges in trying to pick up the pieces from this. Their party is in a very bad spot, notwithstanding the results of the election recently. And Donald Trump remains a force. As, as a uh, as a great philosopher named Neil Pert, I think, uh, put it, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Uh, my my sense was that I heard, uh, you know, somebody clearly preparing uh, to run again. But you know, th- th- it 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 is going to be a crowded field. Uh, O'Malley's take on it is that that's a, a good thing for Democrats, and maybe it is. Um, we can debate how good that such a crowded field was uh, for for Republicans uh, last time around. Um, but you know, this is this is where we're at, Rick. Uh, meanwhile, how's the traffic up there in Philadelphia, in, in Pennsylvania? We're breaking uh, just north of Harrisburg. We're in a in a very good uh, very good place right now. Uh, well well on track to uh, to get to upstate New York in time. Thanks for checking. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving uh, to you, Rick. Happy Thanksgiving uh, for uh, for our entire audience, uh, to our uh, tremendous team that puts this uh, puts this podcast together. Helps us, Avery Miller, uh, Megan Hughes, uh, the, the 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 great uh, David Rind. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll catch up with you after the holiday. 